Good morning, everyone. I'm Brian. I'm community groups pastor here. Uh, we're celebrating Palm Sunday, and you may have seen the children walk through with palms. It's a very exciting moment. Uh, we figured this would be an adequate way to usher in the first day of spring since it's 40 degrees outside and rainy. Um, when I think of palms, I think of white sands, warm waters, nice cold drink, and the breeze blowing through the palm trees. This morning, we couldn't be further from that. Um, but I hope to discuss what's up with the palms this morning. Because for the longest time, I really had no clue. Uh, I don't know where the tradition of children coming through church came in, waving palms. My wife loves it. Our seven-month-old baby loved it. Um, Just the excitement and seeing things move and everything else. But I actually feel like it misses some of the power that's in the palms. And that's what I want to talk about this morning um, cause for the longest time, I just kind of thought Palm Sunday, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, Matthew 21 and being hailed King was a case of mistaken identity that Jesus accepts this praise that it seems like it works well. And so he just runs with it and it feels good, right? You like being acclaimed authoritative. You like being in power, but usually what happens if you're overextending your authority or you're not really true authority is when conflict comes or challenge comes, usually you try to find somebody to pass the buck to. You try to find the escape route. And that's kind of what I picture Jesus wanting to do a lot of times in the last week of his life. In preparing for this message, I found something quite neat, quite powerful that I've never noticed before as I looked at the whole context of it. Because this last week of Jesus' life is a changing point. Something dramatically changes this final week. And we know this is true because he makes a powerful claim on Palm Sunday that's confirmed on Easter. He makes a powerful claim and the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, noted this. They spend 40% of their writings on this one week of Jesus' life. 40%. 60% is attributed to the other 1,716 weeks of his life. You can note the off balance there. One week gets 40% of their time, and they see a change take place. Jesus does something powerful. Up to this point, it's been argued that he's spoken in parables. He's been somewhat ambiguous about his agenda, somewhat hidden about what he plans to do. In Mark, this is called the messianic secret. He heals somebody, does a miracle, and he says, don't tell anyone about it. Kind of keep it hush-hush. But this week, this week marks a change. It is not a case of mistaken identity, but it is something powerful that takes place. This last week of Jesus' life, Holy Week, what we're entering into today, is about five days before Passover. And Passover is one of the biggest celebrations in Jewish history. It's kind of like our Independence Day. It's a powerful moment that happens 1,800 years before Christ comes on the scene. And it is something that radically alters the identity of this Jewish people and makes them a nation. It's a powerful moment. Israel goes down into Egypt at about 70 people strong because of a famine in their land. And they say, Egypt, will you protect us? They give themselves to this Pharaoh, to king. He says, we'll give you our allegiance if you provide for us. And after 400 years, and they've grown from 70 to a couple hundred thousand people, kind of busy people, they grow And Pharaoh looks around and says, okay, I've got a problem. If we go to war 
these hundreds of thousands of Jews who are not Egyptians, don't have a full allegiance to me, they'll join our enemies and fight against us. And the other thing that Pharaoh does is he looks around and says, all good kings leave a legacy. I want to build stuff. I want a good kingdom, something that people will look at and say, this Pharaoh did amazing things. And so what does he do? He solves two problems one way. He says, okay, I'm, fe- I'm fearful of these people, so let's put them in bondage. Let's take them and put them into forced labor and build my kingdom. And so he does this, and after a period of time, Israel looks around at their situation and he says, Pharaoh's not my king. I don't want to serve him anymore. I'm not meant to serve this Pharaoh. Egypt is not my home. This is not where I'm to take up residency. There's something wrong here. I started out, the terms were good, but everything has gone south, and I want to change my allegiance. I want to give my, author- my allegiance to another king. And so God makes an amazing promise, and this promise becomes the paramount verse in Passover. And this Passover will be celebrated every year in spring, about the same time that we have Easter. And this verse comes out of Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7. And God looks at their scene and their situation. He hears their cries and he says, I've heard the groanings of my people Israel, and I am going to deliver them. And he makes four promises. He says, I am the Lord your God. I will free you from the burden of the Egyptians. I will save you, deliver you from the yoke of slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts. Redemption. This is the first time this word appears in our biblical text. God says, I'm going to pull you out. And finally, the fourth promise he makes is, I'm going to take you to be my people. And so what happens? God uses Moses and he sends these ten plagues upon Egypt. And at the tenth plague, Pharaoh breaks down and he says, okay, I've had enough. Go, worship your king. Go worship your God. I'm allowing you to change your allegiance And Israel leaves Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and they worship their God. And in there, there's that great declaration that says, God, you are our king. We are your people. They've changed their allegiance. Something happens, and they look around and says, we are no longer going to serve our false king, Pharaoh. We are going to serve the one true king. And for 1,800 years, they celebrate this national holiday and remembering how God delivered them. And with each new year, they look around at their situation and say, God, we find ourselves back in that place. And so in Jesus' day, the first century, Rome is in power. And they look around and they say, God, we need another Egypt-type deliverance. We need somebody to pull us out, to redeem us from Rome, because Rome, although King Herod had rebuilt the temple... His successors have appointed people disposed to Rome as the chief priest. He's established governors over Jerusalem that are Roman influences. And so while they have a temple, they have some independence, Rome is firmly in control and they are oppressing the people of Israel. And so in the first century, when Jesus comes on the scene, they're looking around saying, who is going to be our king? Who's going to be our authority? Who will deliver us from this false ruler, Rome, who is going to change our situation? Authority this morning is somewhat something that I want to talk about, and I want to borrow from the Encyclopedia of Social Science. 
says, authority is the capacity, innate or acquired, for exercising ascendancy over a group. It's a manifestation of power and applies obedience on the part of those subject to it. And we know this. So authority, for it to be true, legitimate authority, requires consent, right? The people that are in authority govern those who they rule, but it's consensual. The people under their authority consent to them. And that's the the linchpin of authority. It's accepted power. People have to agree to follow authority. Power on the other hand, does not require authority. You can have power without authority, but you can't have authority without power. Max Weber, 19th century German sociologist, identifies the difference between these two, and he plays on them, and he says power needs to be consensual, but authority does not. Consensual. You have to give yourself over to that authority. I remember this growing up in church. Uh, we had some very angry ushers. Very angry ushers. Very angry elders. They were incredibly mean. They looked angry. They came across as angry. You should be very happy for the greeters and ushers that we have here because they smile. Growing up as a child, I could just remember the scowling look on their face, and I swear, if you looked at them for too long, you would turn to stone, because they were so evil to the core, they just inspired fear. I'm good friends with them now, don't worry. But as a child, you have no authority. You have no authority as a child. Everybody seems to have authority, and I remember sitting in big church, where you guys are this morning, we called it big church. Because I didn't want to sit in children's church. Because they were, didn't let you play around. You know, they had very much structure and they didn't provide crayons like we provide here. There was no coloring, there was no fun. It was a great experience as a child. I don't know how I became a pastor. Um, sorry for that. But I remember sitting in big church and, and coloring, drawing, talking, fidgeting. This normal five, six-year-old. And this usher would come over and tap on my shoulder and be like, you need to sit still. You need to stop talking. I mean, it was, they had a handle on things. There was no getting by. And so what I learned, though, about authority is that my mom gave them authority. She gave them authority because instead of looking at them and saying, you don't tell my son what to do. He's going to color if he wants to color. He's going to fidget if he wants to fidget. She would look at me and say, if you don't listen to him, you're going to answer to me. I was stuck under false kings. They exhibited power, but I did not give them the authority to exhibit that power, but they could enforce the rules. That's a false king. I had no power, and I didn't give them that power, and I didn't want to give them that power, but they could enforce the rules. And this is where Israel finds itself under Rome. Rome has all the power, but they've granted Rome no authority. They are looking for a way out. And in this context, Passover happens, this great national deliverance and Independence Day in Israel's history. And this is one of the great pilgrimage festivals in Israel's tradition. Leading up to this festival on Thursday or Friday, the week prior to Passover, there'd be about fifty to 60,000 individuals residing within the city. And over Friday... And Sunday, it would grow to eight or nine times the population size. 
450,000 individuals. And what this means is that the city couldn't contain them. And so they took up camp outside the city walls. And what this means for Rome is a national holiday with eight to nine times the population. What do you think they do? They increase their civil order. They increase their rules. They send more Roman guards in to maintain order. And so Israel is looking around saying, who will deliver us from this that we might celebrate and worship our God freely? And this is where my understanding of Jesus changes a little bit. As I said, I felt like it was a case of mistaken identity, but something here on this week makes me think it was much more intentional, audacious, and powerful than I could have imagined. So with this question, who is your king circulating around the feast, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 21, go get a donkey. Who cares? Like the guy, okay, he's walked a lot. Maybe he wants to take a break. Maybe, you know, he's camped one or two miles outside the city wall. It's treacherous terrain. It's up and down hills. Maybe he just wants a break. Logic kind of flies in the face of this and the fact that Jesus has walked hundreds of miles in his life And nowhere in the Gospels do we have him or his disciples riding an animal, a donkey, or anything other than walking. The second thing that shows that this is an intentional move is that there's actually a law in Jewish tradition that says you can't do this. It's recorded in the Mishnah around the time of Jesus. In Mishnah Haggigah, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Those arriving for feast must do so on foot. Jesus is turning this thing upside down. He's saying, I have a purpose here. And so he tells his disciples to get a donkey for him. And he comes from Mount, Zon- or Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And there's something powerful that happens. In Jewish tradition, there's two places, in Daniel and in Zechariah, says Messiah, the anointed one that's to deliver Israel, will come from the Mount of Olives. And he will bring and deliverance and crush the enemy. And so Jesus takes this donkey who, if you think, is about four feet high. He takes it. He mounts this donkey. And men who are, by law, required to walk on foot are all around him. And what happens? He's now head and shoulders above the crowd. And intentionally, men from hundreds of yards away, thousands of men, could see him riding down this hill. As he mounts his donkey, he is mounting a campaign saying he is king. It's incredibly intentional. It's incredibly powerful. And it's something that alters the course of history. The men of Jerusalem see this, and they're reminded of Zechariah. And they begin to proclaim. They say, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king. Your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, humble, riding on a donkey. They know what's going on, and what they do is what we just saw, our little procession this morning. We have grown men taking up palms and dancing. I won't dance for you this morning. You guys would all need a lot of prayer and therapy. They take up palms, and they begin to dance and sing, grown men, because palms don't symbolize the tropics in Israel. They're more like our American flag. They're a symbol of national pride, a symbol of power, a symbol of prestige. As, soon as, as early as 1000 BCE, the temple on the walls and on the columns are engraved palms 
On their coinage is graved palms because it's one of the major produces of the land. It becomes a symbol of independence, of their own rule. And they take up these palms and they begin to hail him as king. And there's something not in our Bible that plays heavily into this, I believe. 141 years or 170 years before Christ, Simon Maccabeus, this is one of the stories of which we get Hanukkah, comes in and he defeats evil Antiochus, this evil ruler. And this is what it says in 1 Maccabees 13. Simon expelled King Antiochus from the city of Jerusalem and cleansed the city from its pollutions. On the 23rd day, in the 141st year, the Jews entered Jerusalem with palms and praise because a great enemy had been crushed. 170 years earlier, we have a figure coming into history and destroying an evil oppressor and waving palms, hailing his victory. And so the men of Jerusalem pick up this imagery and they say, something powerful is happening here. There's a revolution that's beginning. They begin to sing Hosanna, son of David, in Matthew 21. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna simply is the Hebrew for save us now. Deliver us now. And as I said, all this happens in the context of Passover. And this very psalm would be sung at the end of Passover five days later. Psalm 118. And I want to look at the broader context of it because there's something powerful that happens in this psalm that I've missed before, reading this over and over again. Psalm 118, it says, Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, that sounds like we just read. It says, the Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With palms in hand, join in the festal procession up to the altar, up to the temple. This psalm would have been read during Passover dinner, five days later. And they see this, and they see Jesus mounting this donkey, and it's not some accidental claim. Jesus is boldly stepping up and mounting his campaign, and they realize it, and they take up palms and say, you are our king. Deliver us, God. And Psalm 118 says, they joined in praise with palms in hand up to the temple. And he goes from the Mount of Olives to the temple and begins something radical. This week marks the beginning of his campaign. He makes a claim on Palm Sunday that radically alters the course of history, and he claims power, authority, and purpose. Max Weber, our German sociologist, lists three types of ideal authority. The first is traditional authority, and this is authority based on tradition, history, historical precepts, the fact that what I do today and tomorrow is going to be decided on the past, and it's going to be accepted because it's the past, and most people accept the way things are. The second one is rational or legal authority, and this is formal bureaucracy. This is what Rome has. They have the rule of law on their side. They have power on their side, and therefore they get a level of authority because they can enforce. And then third and finally, there's charismatic authority. This is where Jesus stands. And it's grounded in a heroic personality and holiness and wisdom. 
it's often revolutionary. And this can be said of many leaders around this time. It was said of Simon Maccabeus, 170 years before Jesus. He was a charismatic leader that was able to overturn tradition and change the course of history. But there's one problem that Max Weber identifies with charismatic authority. Charismatic authority is premised on a person. And what happens when that person dies? Unless something dramatic or powerful happens, charismatic authority ends when that person dies. It stops. Because that person is no longer the rallying cry. It's no longer the revolutionary voice. And so for most times, it ends. And Max Weber says the only way that something can change is if it transforms into that sovereign authority that something happens beyond the individual that is grounded in the divine. Something dramatic happens. And Matthew, our gospel, believes that what this dramatic point is is the resurrection itself. That Jesus in his claim would be empty if the resurrection had not happened. Now, how do we know Jesus is being intentional about this, that he's being as bold as I think he is? Because the very next thing that he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. He overturns the religious leaders and he begins to preach and teach and heal in the temple and he disrupts the whole order of religious life intentionally. In Matthew 26, the chief priests and the elders, they look at him and they say, are you the son of God? Are you who you claim to be? And he says, it is so. Even more importantly, you will see the son of man, myself, sitting at the right hand of God in power. This is incredibly bold. It's not a weak Jesus. It's not a Jesus that's trying to hide his identity in this final week. It is a Jesus that is revolutionizing and changing the world in a powerful way. Everything in this week of Jesus' life leads to decision. We like to think of Jesus as incredibly inclusive, and he will welcome everybody who comes to him but there's a choice that needs to be made. And this final week reveals the fact that it's divisive and it takes a moment of decision. All authority requires allegiance. And allegiance has to be granted. And we have two options with the message that's before us and any level of authority that's before us. We can either fight it or consent to it. Right? Those are usually our two options. When authority is presented and somebody comes in claiming authority, we can either fight against it or we can say, okay, I'm going to yield to it. I'm going to submit to it. It requires a concession. Matthew records the account of Jesus against the chief priests and the religious leaders. And they come to a point in their life where they have to make a decision. They look at Jesus and they decide to fight and they say, who gave you the right? On what authority do you do this? Why are you doing this and what gives you the right to do it. And I believe that this response reveals a lot about their heart. It reveals a lot about their heart. Every day we have the question before us, who are we going to listen to? Who will we grant authority to? Who will we follow? Israel had found itself in Egypt under a false king. And they look at their situation and say, okay, we started out and things were going well, but something has changed. Now we're in bondage. We've given our allegiance to a false king, and we want something to change. And they cry out, and they say, 
to God. Pharaoh is not our true king. We want somebody else. We want to follow somebody else. We want to find a legitimate authority. These false kings inspire fear, much like the ushers that I encountered when I was growing up. They inspire fear. They seek to control us. And there are things in our lives that persuade us and pull us down. This is where I find my life. See, I can easily give in to the fears, fear of failure, fear of man, the consequences of my decision. I can be held captive by them. The pain of sin, separation from God, this fear of never being worthy, never being good enough. These things control my life. Fear of careers, fear of health. All these things can control my life. And what I believe Matthew is saying in Jesus' final week is that these things don't have to be our king. They're a false king. They don't have legitimate authority over us. And that's what Jesus declares on Palm Sunday. I invite the music team to come up as we conclude because there's something powerful that happens. Jesus takes this moment in Palm Sunday and says, I am legitimate authority. I have power to overthrow these things, to set you free from your false kings. He takes the Passover context and he records and recounts Exodus 6 and says, I will free you from the bondage of Egypt. I will deliver you from the yoke of slavery, from the burdens of this world. I will redeem you with mighty acts and I will take you to be my people. Jesus has been hailed king on Palm Sunday and his authority has been confirmed in Easter. He makes a claim on Palm Sunday that is confirmed on Easter Sunday. Without Easter Sunday, all of his miracles, all of his teachings, his life are worthless. This is what transforms him from a charismatic leader to something that maintains a movement, a revolution that you guys are partaking in this morning. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if it were not for the resurrection, my faith would be in vain. The claim he makes today is confirmed on Easter Sunday. Without the resurrection, all of this is meaningless. But it requires a decision. True authority requires consent. So the question I have for you this morning is, are you willing to consent to that authority? Are you willing to look to him and say, God, the buck doesn't stop with me. I'm not the one in control. I can do nothing to alleviate the burdens of this world, the pain of this world, the, the fears that I have, the health concerns that I carry. God, you are in control. You are the one in authority. You are the all-consuming power, the one who knows all and is all. We must confess it. As Israel was brought out of bondage, our confession brings us out of bondage and into peace with God. There's something powerful that happens this Sunday that is confirmed next Sunday. In your bulletin, there's a short prayer that I believe if you meditate on this and you pray this this week, my hope is that you'll experience the grace and power of Easter in a new way, in a way that changes everything for you. Prayer is essentially a prayer that 
our allegiance would be given to God. That our lives would be radically transformed by giving Him authority. I want to pray that this morning as we close. And then we're going to join together to sing a part of this song again. Let's pray. Lord, I acknowledge that I've allowed my life, my decisions in relationship with you to be controlled by false kings. Today, I want to give you my allegiance. Acknowledge you as the true authority in my life. May you extend to me freedom and hope. Grant me strength to trust and follow you that I may experience your grace and power this Easter. Lord, we are surrounded by questions every day. And it's easiest to think that we're in control. It's easiest to make those calls ourselves, But they go south so often. And we look for an escape route, a way to get out from under them, Lord. And we've been separated from you. We've struggled on our own. This morning, I believe as we head into Easter, that as we give you authority and acknowledge your right to rule, that our lives will be dramatically altered. Our relationship with you, with others, would be radically transformed. And that's my prayer this morning. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.